Close your eyes and imagine a world of complete silence. No speech. No wind blowing. No birds chirping. No music. By the time Beethoven completed his Ninth Symphony, arguably the greatest symphony ever written, he couldn't hear a single note. There is a great irony in the triumph of a monumental piece of music and the genius who never experienced the glory of his own creation. But the stories of Mozart and Bach are as tragic and as incredible. These are the lives of the three great classical composers. I got into bed last night and I was up until quarter past 12 researching the three great composers of classical music. Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, Wolfgang Mozart, and Ludwig von Beethoven. And I can't tell you, like, I didn't really know that much about their lives. I'd heard their music, all of us have. But I am such a fan now. Don't you agree, Ant? A hundred percent agree. I was also, I was, I wasn't sure if I'd enjoy the, the research on this, but I'm so relaxed after, after researching and listening to some of the music. Well, I don't know how we should go about this because we, we really could do an episode on each of these three guys. They were, they were all phenomenal human beings. But let's start with Bach because he was the, the oldest, the earliest. He was born in 1685. I just want to talk about what the three of them had in common. All three really had very unhappy lives. They had very difficult lives. All of them had a very difficult childhood. And the fathers played a massive role, either dying early or being extremely domineering or being alcoholic. Yeah. And it's just amazing when you think about the fact that these three men who had such incredible output, they composed reams and reams of sheet music. There are famous melodies and songs and orchestral arrangements that everyone in the world today knows. I mean, they're more popular in Japan than they are in the country of their birth. But amazingly, all three of them had pretty ordinary lives. The only one who was really celebrated during his lifetime in, in, a, in a massive way was Beethoven when he died and had 20,000 people at his funeral. Mozart had a pauper's burial. It was actually quite sad. But I also think it's a lot to do with the time. So if you weren't royalty, then yeah. they used to put you in multiple graves. Yeah. And it's actually quite sad that they don't exactly know where they're buried. I mean, if these guys live today, 20,000 would be a poor attendance in their funeral. <laughs> well, let's start with Bach. So he actually was orphaned, as you indicated earlier, difficulty with parents. He was orphaned. Both his mother and father died when he was about nine. He lived with his brother who studied with the great composer Pachelbel. And there is a link between almost all of these guys, Haydn, Handel, Pachelbel, Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. And it's a, it's a kind of tenuous link, but we'll explain that in a minute. He went off to music school, Bach, and he learned the organ and the harpsichord. But he wasn't, unlike Beethoven and Mozart, he wasn't seen as a prodigy early on. You know, He really put in the hard work and he copied sheet music and he worked for some very ordinary noblemen through the course of his time. But the guy was absolutely amazing and he had such 
discipline and he loved music so much. He once walked 400 kilometers in Germany. He walked the entire distance to go and hear an organist play. That's correct. And uh, after he listened to it, he wanted to actually be taught by Dietrich Buxthude. He was very, very well-known organist at the time there. And uh, he stuck around for four months and he wanted to succeed Buxtehude, but the requirement was that he had to marry Buxtehude's daughter, and he didn't want to do that. So he promptly walked back. He walked home. Can you imagine inserting those terms and conditions into a modern contract of employment? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Bach had basically three periods in his life in terms of composition. The first one was in his early 20s, and he married his cousin, Maria. He had some children with her. In fact, altogether, he had 20 children. Yeah, he's a significant procreator. <laughs> um, he wrote lots of the preludes and fugues and the well-tempered clavier during this time. But he did get bored with the religious music, and he actually got into arguments with his employer and got locked up in jail for a whole month. Well, his whole ideal was he, he wanted to take over as, as the meister, and he'd been <laughs> there for five years, and he didn't get the job. So he was overlooked and he was absolutely crazy. So he left that particular court and he joined a rival court. So the Duke got a bit upset and chucked him in jail. <laughs> His second period was with Prince Leopold of Korten. And he, he mostly wrote um, non-religious music and secular cantatas. And this guy really saw the genius of him because it was at that point that he gave him money and said, you know what, just write music, just compose. And that's where he came up with the amazing Brandenburg concertos. And of course, I mentioned Handel earlier. Handel was the great composer who was actually born in the same year as Bach. And Handel was already quite famous, but they actually never met each other, despite being around at the same time and knowing about each other quite well. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interlinked. And it's amazing that three of the greatest classical composers all lived sort of very, very close to each other. But what was so important was the platform laid or, or the fertilizer put down by the Enlightenment. That, that gave the opportunity for them to express what they had. And the amount of music that these guys produced in the 100 years from the beginning of Bach to when Beethoven passed away, it's just incredible. To just finish with Bach quickly, because there's quite a lot about his life that we're going to have to skip through, unfortunately. We have to cover the other two as well. But he, he wrote over 300 cantatas at a certain period in his third major composing period. And that was when he was in Leipzig. And he had the job as the cantor of St. Thomas's Church, where he's buried. And he wrote these 300 cantatas. And a cantata is a complicated movement. It's actually about 20 to 30 minutes long. And it's equivalent to composing, during the same time frame, 150 pop albums of today. That's how much music he managed to write during a, sp a space of probably about one or two years. That's incredible. He had a massive high work ethic. And also across a lot, whole lot of different genres. If we look at that song, Everything's Gonna Be Alright, that was a direct sample from the suite number three, the orchestral suite number three. It's just so much of our music today is linked to these guys. But this guy had a bit of a temper, didn't he? Um, Bach was, he was very willful and, and quite bad tempered. I mean, all three of them were actually, but Bach apparently got into a knife fight with a guy. Correct. I think he was a very, very serious individual. And often when he when he was told to come to the court, he, he believed it was for his talent. But it, it actually wasn't. He had to go and not only had to be part of the orchestra and lead that, he also had to teach some of the students. And he hated teaching. He absolutely hated teaching. And the one time, it's amazing, he actually said to one of his students, you're a nanny goat bassoonist. 
which were in those days fighting words. Yeah. So the, the nanny goat bassoon is hitting with his walking stick. And <laughs> which is interesting that I don't know why Bach had a dagger, but he did. <laughs> so, so he had a dagger. He pulled and he out went a knife. Down. He yeah. pulled out a knife. But overall, he was a very serious character. His children talked a lot about it, and his second wife talks a lot about it. Well, Germans are not known for their sense of humor, and he was absolutely one of those stereotypical Germans. But he did throw his wig at someone once and told them that they should have been a cobbler rather than a musician. Uh, And he, he did have all those children, and there are not many details about the kind of personality that he had in terms of what he infused into his music, because Baroque music, which was what he was still composing, is more or less formal. So it doesn't really let you express yourself the way that Beethoven and Mozart maybe expressed themselves in the more classical music they wrote. But he had a stroke in 1750 and died then. And there are copies of Bach's music that have been found in the papers of, of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, They all knew who he was, and they all took inspiration from him. So in some ways, he was a progenitor to the next two. They mention the godfather of classical music, Johann Sebastian Bach. Just briefly mentioning at his time of his death, he had cataracts, and there was an intrepid doctor that believed he could solve these things. So basically was pushing the cataract deep into the eye. yeah, so he went blind, and then he, I think the shock and the devastation killed him. He basically died a year later, just after that. Yeah, he was a man who was, he was orphaned by, as we mentioned, the age of nine, and he lost 11 of his 20 children. So Tragic. Yeah, and that was in infancy and childbirth. And he really loved, although it was his cousin, yes, he really, really loved his first wife, and she died, you know, at quite a young age. So he, it seemed like such a difficult grief-stricken life. And they spoke about, you know, in the transition between when he lost his wife and to when he married Magdalena, he was grief-stricken and sleeping with groupies in the organ loft, dueling, (laughs) fighting. So it was almost like our hard rock stars of today. Sleeping with groupies in the organ loft. Wow. Exactly, yeah. All right, let's turn our attention to Mozart, whose name is well known to everyone on earth. Um, Even if you're a complete ignoramus, you will have heard of Mozart. And Mozart, in some ways, is the most famous composer of all time. He was born in 1756 in Salzburg, and he was a child genius. I mean, he was composing at the age of five years old. He played the piano and the violin, and he toured all of Europe from the age of seven. In his life, he wrote 600 masterpieces, not just 600 songs or symphonies or cantatas or movements. He wrote 600 masterpieces. And the saddest thing of all is he died before he'd even turned 36. Yeah, I think that the world lost so much what he could have produced going forward. Now, obviously, when you have a child who is that much of a prodigy, they're also a little bit precocious. So a lot of people were put off by Mozart in his youth, and his father was like his manager. And his sister, whose name was Nanel, she was like his co-star, and they would go around Europe like a touring band, really. And they'd perform for royalty, and they went to France, they went to England. He actually met Handel, which again connects us from Bach to Mozart to Handel. And he went to the Royal Society and someone wrote a paper on him because he was such a curiosity. He was such a, an amazing genius. And then at 12 years old, he went back to Salzburg and they wrote an opera. He wrote an opera and, and it was rejected. And he was quite downcast by that. But he had, he had no luck in terms of 
the relationships in his life, except towards the end where his wife, which we'll get to in a minute, gave him some comfort. But he had a friend who drowned. You know, he'd met the Pope by that stage and already received the Order of the Golden Spur. And really only after a lot of, of this hard work in his childhood, which reminds me a little bit of Michael Jackson almost, did he start settling into his life? His father pushed him so hard. You talked about that four years, if you can just imagine, he was seven years old and they went on a four-year tour. And during that time, he got sick, but they were earning income and the father realized it very much that his two children were, were the source of his wealth. And even when they got sick, you know, he still kept them there. And I think that's a very, very tough childhood. But having said that, he was a massive genius, precocious genius, and people kept telling him that. At such a young age, he was set up for failure to integrate properly into society. Yeah. And he fought with all of his employers. So there was, you know, famously the archbishop in Salzburg was the, the big boss. And his father worked for the archbishop. And because of that, it made it really difficult because Mozart was, you know, trying to be creative and do his own thing. But the archbishop needed him to compose things every week for the church. And his father was a complication because if Mozart behaved badly, the archbishop would take it out on the dad. So it was really messy. And they, he always, Mozart, always had trouble with money. He just never seemed to have enough money. Yeah, and he went through a good stage, very, very famous, and he was performing all the time. And he was a brilliant performer. He used to do such incredible things on the keyboard, almost like a trickster, playing, you know, different tricks and that. And he earned a lot of money, but then he'd move into a big house, burn all the money. They had to move into a smaller house, then a smaller house, yeah. then, a, then an apartment. <laughs> and Constance, his wife, she enjoyed it even more to spend all the money. So it wasn't a great, <laughs> it wasn't a great partnership from that perspective. Apparently, they both liked fine clothes. But it's interesting, you mentioned Constance. Now, he actually fell in love with her older sister. And then the older sister went off and married someone else. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. But there's not a lot written about the intensity or how sad he was. I mean, he moved on very quickly to the sister. And all intents and purposes, that was, ended up being the love of his life. So just a few things about him. He was actually offered the job of being the organist at Versailles for the King of France, and he turned that down. He was supported, and one of his best friends in his life was uh, Haydn, the, the composer we've already mentioned. He probably most famously wrote The Marriage of Figaro, which got him the greatest standing ovation in Viennese musical history. Uh, he was a Freemason. He composed Don Giovanni, which Beethoven came to, to visit Mozart at this time, and they met just once. Mozart said some very complimentary things about him, and they only met that one time. But Mozart was made the court composer by Emperor Josef II of Austria, and he composed three great symphonies in six weeks, just in his head. It's just incredible. I'm just trying to picture how he could do that. But they say he had these tunes in his head, and I suppose that's why he was quite peculiar. He was such a massive genius. But he still retained his childlike manner in the way he carried himself and, and sometimes crude sexuality. And he did have humor. I mean, compared to Bach, they were completely different. It's lucky for him, though, that he did meet Constanza and that they did have a good marriage because he didn't have a long life. So the happiness that she brought him, even though the two of them had constant money problems and he had to pawn the silver and all kinds of other things, she was there for him when he got sick. And he was weighed down by his finances. But they say he had a fever, rash, 
sweating, diarrhea, swelling, pain, and vomiting for 15 days before he died. They've mentioned that he was possibly poisoned by Salerio, which was another famous composer, fellow composer that might have poisoned him. You know, there was a lot of competitiveness and jealousy yeah. amongst the composers at the time. But they really don't say that that's, that's true. No, in fact, in 2009, they, they went through the death records for Vienna and they found that there was actually a small epidemic at the time. It was like a streptococcal infection and it did make people swell and it seems to fit the bill, according to forensic scientists, for what actually ended up killing him. Yeah, and I think Gareth, in the end, he had a modest burial and as you mentioned in the beginning, although not quite a pauper's, what they say is the neglected genius. Yeah, I mean, it was a mass grave and they you'd pour lime on and... And then they just cover you up with a whole bunch of other bodies. And there is a memorial to him in the, the cemetery in Vienna. But we don't know if he's actually buried under there. And here was this guy who various musical geniuses since have called the most extreme unequaled talent of all humankind in music. I mean, that's a hell of a thing to say about someone. I've listened to the music. It's just incredible. You know, even... Twinkle, twinkle, little star that we might sing lullabies and those type of things. I mean, it's also come direct reference from his music. There's just so much in our life that we, that we hear. Adverts are played by all three of these composers. Yeah. Adverts we hear, they're in the background. It's, yeah. it's their music. Even as a kid growing up in cartoons, you would hear some refrain from one of these great composers and you'd think, oh, okay, you know, that comes from this guy you'd find out much later so let's move on to beethoven uh ludwig von beethoven was born in bonn in 1770 actually visited the house he was born in two years ago and at age seven he had started publicly playing the piano 1783 he began writing his first works and earned a living as a composer he supported his whole family so tell me about beethoven's dad johann he saw what leopold mozart did with mozart and he wanted to do the same thing with Beethoven. But Beethoven wasn't a child prodigy like Mozart. It took him a while to get into it, you know, to warm into the music. But, I mean, let's also admit that his father was a raging alcoholic long before. Yeah, but it was scary, the very difficult, abusive relationship that took place with his dad. And, I mean, that had a massive impact, a profound impact in his life. So he actually became the head of his own household at age 18, um, and took over his father's job as the boss of the house and therefore had the burden of looking after everyone in the family. But before that, he'd been introduced to Neef and the other classical masters, noblemen, various noblemen in his part of the world in Germany had paid for him to go to Vienna, which was the capital of classical music. And he went off to Vienna and he, he met Mozart, who we've just spoken about. And Mozart stood and watched him play and was so impressed that he went next door to find his wife in the room next door and to tell her to come and look because this kid was someone who would give the world something to talk about. Yeah. What an amazing meeting for these two great people to have been in the room. Only once did they meet. Yeah, I just can imagine. Just incredible. Just between them, what they've written. Apparently, some of Beethoven's music is so difficult to play that musicians still refuse to play it to this day. And he, he said to one of them during his own lifetime when they they looked at what he'd composed and they said, this is impossible. He said, do you think I give a damn about your miserable violin when the muse visits me? <laughs> but he was a notorious daydreamer. Oh, yeah? Often he used to just sit and he would be so preoccupied 
um, or you would be engaging with somebody to just get up and walk outside or get up and write on a board. So he was very deep in his own head. But he had a, a problem that I think a lot of nerds have, and he was definitely a music nerd because he was a loner. I mean, he'd been beaten when he was a child. He was quite a scruffy kid. He had pockmarked skin. and He was quite dark. They called him Sicilian. And he was short as well, so not a great combo. And he had what many nerds have, an infatuation with girls who are just out of his league. And he kept falling in love with these noble women who obviously rejected him because he was just a, a common man. And they were going to go and get married to people of their own stature. And also, he never dressed properly. He was always disheveled. <laughs> and apparently, he used to go through stages where he didn't bath. Yeah, apparently three weeks at a time, he wouldn't change his clothes. They'd always be covered in like food scraps. He would leave food lying around in his apartment. There was just sheet music and like food scraps lying around. And it's amazing that, that he managed to even survive what most people in his position wouldn't have survived. I mean, he, he found that he had a ringing in his ears somewhere around his late 20s. And he knew that this meant that he was going to lose his hearing. But he was so proud that he wouldn't admit that he was going deaf. And he became violent and abusive. And he'd get quite physical with people. And there was a lot of rage, justifiably. And of course, he'd been turned down by these women, including a Countess Jakarti, who he'd written the famous Moonlight Sonata to in order to woo her. Yeah, that's one of the more ironically tragic parts of his life. You know, he just breathed beauty in, in music that he created and you need your hearing. And that was very, very sad that the one sense that you really, really need, he, he lost. And that's what makes him, for me, the most remarkable of the three. Yeah. Well, he wrote the, the third symphony, and this is another link to one of our previous Blind History episodes for Napoleon, whom he idolized. And when Napoleon had himself declared emperor, Beethoven fell out of love with him completely because he felt he'd been betrayed like he had by his own father. And he, he was staunchly a man of the Enlightenment. And so he actually tore Napoleon's name out of the manuscript for the Third Symphony. And you can see it today. His name has been torn out and he dedicated it to the hero instead. Yeah, that's a very famous part of Beethoven's life. He so admired Napoleon, you know, during the early years. Well, Another interesting thing, I mean, there were nine symphonies written. He was hoping to write a tenth before he died. But famously, by the time the seventh symphony was written, he had to press his ear against the wood of the piano just to hear the faintest sound of what he'd actually composed. And it was around this time that he famously had the immortal beloved in his life. We don't know who it might have been. There are possibly two candidates who may have been the immortal beloved. But this was obviously a woman he was desperately in love with who either did or didn't love him back. And there are rumors that he might have had a child with the Countess von Braunschweig. But we don't know for sure. And most of his life was miserable and, and lonely. Especially with the hearing problem. I mean, that just he, he went into his shell because... He couldn't engage with people. First of all, he tried to hide it because money was also important to him. Mm. So he had to earn a living and he had to hide it for a long period of time. But they did find letters. Um, uh, that's what you're alluding to, Gareth. Yeah. Uh, nobody knew who it was, but they were definitely romantic letters. And he never sent them. They were found in his papers, you know, yeah, as, sure. and he just never had the, the courage to send them to whoever this woman might have been. But he did have a very ugly custody battle over his nephew, later in his life. And it really, it 
dampened the enthusiasm for him in the public realm. First of all, because it was humiliating to him that he'd always cultivated this idea that he might have been of noble birth. And the trial evidenced the fact that he was not. He was just an ordinary man. And that boy that he ended up uh, getting custody of, his own nephew, hated him and tried to commit suicide. Sure, that was a big, big thing in his life. It really, really hurt him. It was, I think, it was quite close to when he was, he passed away, and I think that was one of the reasons, definitely, that that affected him. Well, those last few years of his life in the eighteen twenties were really his most prolific. He wrote the most amazing music that he'd ever written, and he kind of rebounded, even though he'd had this very difficult and and complex existence up to then. But he was absolutely enthralled by and in love with music. And he wrote the famous Ninth Symphony, you know, the Ode to Joy, which is just the most passionate and optimistic piece of music. And it's the first symphony ever to use a chorus. He never, at the performance of the Ninth Symphony, which was absolutely spectacular, people stood up and they were they were enthralled. And he didn't even know because he was so deaf yeah. that the musicians had to turn him around to look at the crowd to see the applause that he was getting. And then he started crying. I think there was one term that just said he just, there was tears coming out of his eyes. But it's so funny because when he died, apparently there was also a big clap of thunder and he was lying in his deathbed and he raised his fist to the heavens, almost like defiant, you know. Just to look at a little bit of a summary with Beethoven, um, you mentioned before about different periods in the lives of all of them in terms of, of what they're producing. And when he was young, he used his predecessors' music in many of his early works. And I think in the time they used to call it like Mozartian type of uh, music. Mm -hmm. And his music became deeper and stronger and richer. And in his last years when the deafness had sort of blotted out his world, I mean, some of the music that he produced during that time is phenomenal. And I think from that perspective, it's just such a triumph over adversity. And this is probably why, for me, Beethoven is just the most remarkable of the three. I love him too. It's very hard to choose your favorite, but I've, I've probably heard more Beethoven music than any of the others, and I just love everything I hear. He was also the, the guy whose music is on the Voyager spacecraft, which is still traveling through space. So if any aliens ever find it, they'll find Beethoven on there. He's the EU anthem. The Ninth Symphony is the EU anthem. And when they brought down the Berlin Wall, they were playing Beethoven's music as it came down. And if only these guys knew. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, in their own lifetimes, they just never had this kind of success. Although he was, a, he was a pretty much a big celebrity by the time he died. He wasn't like Mozart where he just spent all his money. He looked after it, looked after his family. Well, he left everything to that nephew who tried to kill himself. So at least there was an yeah. upside to him in the long run. But it's interesting. Um, someone much more worldly than I once said that talent is something a man possesses. But genius possesses the man. And that's true for all three of these guys. Agreed. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this season three of Blind History. It's been an unbelievable roller coaster ride for both Ant and I. I mean, I've enjoyed it so much and I've discovered so much about people that I thought I knew. Yeah, for me, it, it was incredible. Some of the characters that we talked about, when you looked at them in the beginning, I thought, no, yeah. you know, but... These people blew me away. I mean, in completely different ways. I am so pleased that we went into the characters of people like Ava Peron and some of the bad guys, you know, Genghis Khan and 
Ivan the Terrible, and after three seasons, I feel like I could just keep going forever. Oh, me too. Well, maybe we will. Keep an eye on this spot. This is CliffCentral.com, Blind History Season 3, Gareth Cliff and my co-host, Anthony Medera. That's a wrap. What really interested me in this part of his life was that he was so shit at maths. And, you know, we get our teachers whipping us and say, oh, you need maths in your life. And you have to do this. Yeah, maths. Maths is everything. Beethoven was so bad at maths and look what he created. Yeah, and then there are those people who will tell you that music is just like mathematics. (laughs) Yeah, so he proved that wrong.